0: Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and you'll want to stay to the very end of this incredible marathon conversation, wide-ranging conversation with Chris Haley for his rendition of a very, very special poem performance. Enjoy. Mm
1: My name is Chris Haley. I'm a writer, director, actor, filmmaker. And you might know me from being a, a nephew of the author Alex Haley and also the director of the study of the legacy of slavery in Maryland. I give speeches on genealogy in African American history throughout the United States of America and actually internationally as well. I was also on The Wire for two episodes. Chris Haley. Welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad you have made it.
0: I am really excited to have you on. You have lived a, a, a kaleidoscope type of life and so pumped to sort of dig into that world because I think there are pots of gold at the bottom of every uh, <laughs> of every subject. But I want to start and give... Uh, The audience a little bit more of a context around who you are, and I'm going to read Mm -hmm. a little bit from a bio. As I always say, uh, it is the internet, so if there's something (laughs) that's incorrect in the bio, feel free to let me know afterwards, and we'll get that fixed up. Chris is a producer on the film Unmarked, which was nominated for an Emmy in 2020. As director of both the study of the legacy of slavery in Maryland at the Maryland State Archives Research Department and the Utopia Film Festival in Greenbelt, Maryland, Mr. Haley has served on many prestigious boards in the world of African-American genealogy, as well as in the arts. They include the Kunta Kinte Alex Haley Foundation, Historic London Town Foundation, Jake Savage Foundation, Annapolis Arts Alliance Foundation, and the Annapolis Film Festival, among others. Chris is well-respected as a speaker at numerous venues throughout the United States, where he has spoken on themes such as African-American history, self-empowerment, and genealogy. He earned his BA in English and drama minor at the University of Maryland College Park and resides in Landover, Maryland, and... I want to start with that very sort of personal beginning for you when you were uh, just a child. You're, <laughs> oh, five
1: years ago. Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. When
0: you were just a just a wee <laughs> child,
1: your right. grandmother
0: gave you your first pictorial book mm-hmm. of African-American history in America. And that seemed to have stuck w- stuck with you. Why, why did it stick with you
1: so much? It was the American history. Heritage, a national, oh, was a national history of the, the Negro in America, which tells you about how how old this book was. Uh, it was written. It was edited by Lerone Bennett Jr., who since came to be known as Imaru Baraka, I believe. And what what it re- resonated with me because even though at that very young age, I was already taken with Black history. I still had the barest understanding and comprehension that that was a broad history because I really was like so many kids, I think, who are who are black. I, I knew about Frederick Douglass. I knew about Harry Tubman. I knew about George Washington Carver. And I wouldn't be surprised if many kids do not know about George Washington Carver now because before, he was one of the three that you already always spoke about, and I, and I don't know why. I mean, my, my cynical mind could say because he was not in any way um, a rebellious thought to, to the, the overall narrative, which is to say, if you talk about Harriet Tubman, you're talking about someone who's famous for what? She's famous for leading people out of slavery which is something that many people do not want to talk about. Uh If you talk about Frederick Douglass, what is he famous for? He's famous for being an orator, an abolitionist, for someone who had to escape slavery. George Washington Carver is more widely renowned as as a botanist, someone who who created many, uh, I guess, scientific experiments based on the peanut, so it was a, he was a very safe person to talk about, whereas in this book that my grandmother gave me, it was showing me all these other persons of color who had contributed to the national history of black people who were, who were soldiers, who were writers, who were actors, who were scientists, who were teachers, who were astronauts, who, who were politicians, and, and they looked like me. And so that was almost like a, a world that opened, almost as if you go to the library or you see, oh my God, what are all these things? All these books and I could get any of them. And then in this one book, there's all these black people. And so I'm not limited to these three <laughs> and all these other people who don't look like me who I see on, on TV or at the movies. This is amazing. So it opened up my my reality to the fact that there were other people out there who had created history, who were also of uh, of my heritage. And even I was so young, I man. I only, I'm sure I wasn't even ten years old. I guess it just gave me a sense of excitement and and um, I guess inspiration and motivation to think that. I could do more, too, because there were more people who had already done more.
0: One of our mentors is Dick Gregory, the, the great mm-hmm. Dick Gregory, and he would always say that John Brown was the most mm-hmm. important American or the greatest American to ever live. Well, what do you think about John Brown?
1: I think John Brown is one of those persons. I, I, I'm I'm back and forth on John Brown because, um, I mean, I think it's amazing what he did because he he was someone who who, who, I guess, realized what was wrong and decided to, to strike out against what was wrong regardless of what it would mean to him, uh, let's say in his community or for other fellow persons who were white or, or, or white men. And he felt that there was no, let's say, politicking in going about it it was it was like this is something that's worth going to war over and i'm going to go to war over it so i think in that sense i'm like it was an incredibly brave thing an incredibly bold thing and an incredibly uh wild uh reality to to support that and why i say i'm kind of torn is because obviously i'm not obviously but i'm not one who would who would who would um, support going out there and killing people even if you disagree with them, you know, men, women, children, I certainly would never support that. And, And there is a part of me that, that feels like if you're a black person, realize that you're black and then go from there. Don't hate yourself. Cause there are some people who are in the political sphere who talk so much about, um, who are black conservatives. And sometimes I wonder, do you not look in the mirror sometimes? Do you not realize that you actually are uh African-American? And then are, there are some white Americans who are so like, Hey brother, how you doing, man? I'm with you. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm that's cool. I'm glad you associate. I'm glad you, you are, accept me. But, but do remember that you yourself are white. So I don't, I don't, I don't need you. I don't, I don't, want you to disregard who you are as as a person or your heritage to support me or to support what what my heritage is i i want you to accept who you are and then also support me but i don't need you to quote unquote hate yourself to support me because to me that means more If you if you were like, I am white American, I have all this baggage, but I support you. Just like if you are black American and maybe you have differences, you're not liberal, so to speak, or you're not supporting the current uh, ideology of the Democratic Party. That's okay But remember, you are still black because sometimes. And I will not name these people because they, deserve, <laughs> they do not deserve, deserve to have their, their uh, names come through my lips. Uh, I, I feel like they seem like they hate themselves. And, and, and that's something I just don't appreciate. I feel like he knew who he was and he decided to fight against the, the, the enslavement that his, his heritage had brought upon un, other people anyway. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm with you. I like the, the long winded answers, just so you know, because okay. <laughs> I think there's a lot more to dig into on them. Yeah. There is a lot of rhetoric today about see me as a color first and as mm-hmm. a person second. I really disagree with it. I'm, I'm happy mm-hmm. to take pushback from you on that or from anybody I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen as a race before, before you know anything else about me. I just, I just don't. I'm biracial. I always feel mm-hmm. qualified to do this podcast and to talk about mm-hmm. these subjects simply because my dad is white, my mom is black, and neither mm-hmm. of them were emulating the other's culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to meet my dad is to meet the most, um, Quintessential white man you would ever meet.
1: <laughs> okay, <got it. laughs> right, right, right.
0: And to meet my mom would be to meet the most quintessential black woman you've ever you've ever met as well. For, and from the South on top of that. Mm-hmm, sure. and somehow they made it work and they, you know, we're married for 35 years and all that stuff. So I always feel like I come from these, uh come at these subjects from a unique perspective of not having uh, unconscious bias around. Mm-hmm. subject because I was raised right down the middle without any uh ideas being foisted upon me. And mm-hmm. so hearing your your feedback on that was great. Um yeah I mean I think
1: there's some of those the statements that I hear people say and and I it always struck me as weird. And I don't know how you feel about this uh being named after me and all, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that sometimes where people say I don't see I don't see color, or, or a friend of mine would say I don't see color, I just see and I'm thinking well, and I always felt weird about that. And I thought, well, would there be a problem if you did? Because that to me, that's what comes to my mind. It's like, yeah, I'm a black man, you know, and you and we and we are we taught we're like brothers, you know, and your children are my, my nieces and nephews. Then you're a white guy. I see you as a white guy. I don't think of you consciously every minute of every day as a white guy. I don't think of of your kids. Well, again, I consider my nieces and nephews as um, as white kids, but I know they are. And for me to say, I don't see you as white, I don't see you as whatever, then I, I feel like there's an implication that if I did, there would be something wrong with that. And I, and I and I feel like the point is to see a person as they are and not let that affect how you view them and, and say, you're black and I love you. You're white and I love you. And I, and, and and difference like you're, mm, I don't know what you are. <laughs> I'm not right. going to admit you what uh-huh. you are, <laughs> and I love you because if I admit it, something's wrong with me. It's like no, nothing's wrong with you. You you're being you're a realistic person. You're if if you are not colorblind, then you know my my racial designation uh, via the eye test, so to speak, and and that's okay. And and I and I feel. And I feel fine about that. And and so that's, whenever people say that, I feel like you don't need to say that to me. I mean, I guess that's what what my point is. Is like, no, you don't need to say you don't see color when you think of me. There's no yeah. point to that. It's, it's I mean,
0: unnecessary. There's a difference between it being the first thing that you notice about a person. Right. And then you changing your behavior and conversation because of that, which I think is what's being prophesized today versus right. just, hey, you notice that I'm I'm a black guy. I notice that you're a white guy or girl, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not going to change the way I behave around you. That's different than saying, notice this first and then change your behavior. I think a lot of times when we do that, we put people in decision fatigue. Yes. It's like, oh, okay. I got to change my language. I go, okay, what kind of choices should I make? Instead of letting them be who they really are and trying to see sort of the person that that's that that's really there
1: right and i'm sure i'm, I'm guessing oh, you're probably the same thing i've gone through where you feel like okay some people are saying oh you're not black enough <laughs> you go through that because i just my, when i went to university of maryland college park in the theater department there were i think three black guys in the department and maybe one or two um one or two black women. And it was, it, I mean, I won't say it was the largest department in the world of, of, theater people, but it was a significant amount. And yet I never really felt like I got a part just because I was black. There was one part I got because specifically it was a black guy, but other, other than that, the parts I got seemed to be uh color neutral, so to speak. Right. And, and I will tell you, honestly, because I was so conscious of not being judged to get something just because I was black and or wanting to be able to show that I could do more than get parts because I was just black. I probably made a decision, which subsequently I sort of kind of regret, which is I probably could have gone to Howard University. My father went to Howard University and Howard University, as many of your viewers or listeners know, has a phenomenal reputation for theater people and for drama background however at my young age i wanted to say i can do it i could do it on my own i could do it regardless of being black and and there was a part of me that thought i'm not going to go to a school that's all black and then i'm going to get roles where somebody in in later years could say oh well you of course you got roles there it was all black school you're a black guy you got roles there I, I, there was a part of me said, I want to go to a predominantly white school and get parts there to prove that I can get parts in a predominantly white school, too. In retrospect, I feel like I probably should have gone to Howard because it has a better reputation theatrically. Chadwick Bozeman, so many people, Debbie Allen, I mean, so many phenomenal people right? a lineage to Howard University. than my pride saying that, no, no one's ever going to be able to say that you just got a part because you went to a black college, so... Uh, You know, the things you do when you're young, whatever. No,
0: that's that's great for this audience. I mean, so many in this Mm -hmm. audience are making films. They're independent filmmakers. They're making films for the first time. And so much of what goes through your head as you do something for the first time is what will people think? And how do I actually want to do this? And trying to curate something that you can't really, that you don't have 100% control of in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you get in your own head. So it's actually, I think, a benefit to this audience. There were other things probably going on in your head as well, growing up. I, I am curious because you mentioned it in your introduction about being the nephew of Alex Haley, mm-hmm. famous author of Roots. and you know Roots just being such a, I mean, it's really the first time black people were shown on camera that way and when it came out in January of seventy seven as a miniseries. It still mm-hmm. had probably the largest viewership of any show, or probably top 10 viewership of any show on a season finale or series finale, a hundred million plus viewers in 1977. That's insane. Mm-hmm. So what was grade school and going through college and growing up like with Alex Haley as your uncle?
1: It was, I'm going to use, maybe it's a cliche word, surreal in a way because and, and I try and I think in terms of this is probably like what it's like for so many other people um, who also are, are living in the shadow of of celebrity so to speak <laughs> and and I guess there's there's different levels of celebrity which is also part of the consideration is that celebrity of something that is from a purely entertainment point of view and then there's celebrity of the of the uh, in the realm of historical and social significance or relevance, and my uncle was was really both of those, is that he was famous because of being the writer of roots and co-author of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And he was also a person who was known for these very Afrocentric, pieces of work which were not just literary pieces they were literary pieces which meant so much more because Mm -hmm. of the subject matter that they that they that they were concerning and because of that it was almost to those people who were I'd say close friends of mine I was still primarily an actor a guy who wanted to do plays and parts and this that and the other and 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 a nice kid who was good in school and this that, and the other, but I think for those persons who did not know me already, and who would learn of my my connection, my my connection, then then if they were, I'd say at the base level of before getting to know you, getting to know you, <laughs> then it's then I think from from, from perhaps a, a, a A distant point of view, let's let's say from a white point of view, it could be, wow, your your uncle was famous, and he's the writer of Roots, and he's the writer of Autobiography of Malcolm X. That's amazing. From the black point of view, it's like, wow, your uncle was Alex Haley. He wrote Roots. He wrote the Autobiography of Malcolm X. What do you think about what they're doing about this? What do you think about this this racial issue? What do you think about this? I mean, it, it was sort of a different twist on what happened. And then they would, in later life, and I would say this is probably within the last 10 years or so after he's already passed away, but I would think with the election of Barack Obama and all this stuff, uh, all, all that stuff, which is really just the election of Barack Obama, then it became, for those persons who were, at least in my experience, white and conservative, it was like, oh, you're Alex Haley's nephew and you're the director of the study of the legacy of slavery in Maryland? Hmm well, what is it that you still need to w- worry about? <laughs> what is it that you still need to concern yourself with? I mean, literally, I've, I've had comments to that to that effect because it seems like there's this expectation that I should have a final or, or a penultimate point of view about these matters because of my... 9 to 5 job and because of my my lineage and sometimes i'm just hey hey i'm just here to enjoy the ribs you know i'm just here <laughs> the, i'm just here for the fish fry you know i'm not here to pontificate i'm not here to to politic or anything that please i really i mean if you want me to give a speech then i will give you my speaker's fee and, I will, and we can and we can talk and you can schedule me and i can you know you know we can have at it you know and and I'll give you what I want for my lodging and what I want for this, but but right now I'm just trying to be a regular guy like you're a regular person who's asking me what I've now find is to be an awkward question because right. you want me to get political with you, and now you want me to represent my race with you because of my of my heritage and my lineage, and so when I was younger. It really was more, I'd say, about the fame of it Mm -hmm. and being the relative of a famous person. But as I become older, it's more about what that represents sociologically, historically, and and spiritually, because of what roots and the autobiography of Malcolm X are, are ultimately about. You were quoted once
0: as saying, it's not for me to live my life, reliving his life, how difficult has it been to forge your own identity uh, in spite of his fame?
1: Right. I I think it's been a very, it's been very challenging because there's, there's times when, I mean, there's the, there's the reality of say when you have, if you are a, a member of a family, and let's say you have two kids in the family, and, and your your mother or your father get really mad at you. Inevitably, they'll say, "Oh, um, I don't know if you have any siblings, but let's say I do. if you do." Okay, so they get really mad, and so they won't say Chris; they'll say Bob. Why did you? Do that? I'm Chris. Oh, I, because they're just so frustrated. They're, so, they're just so mad, and so and I'm used to that. It was just myself and my brother are uh, Cornell, and so sometimes my mother says, "Cornell, Chris, please, whoever you are." <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's one aspect of just reality. But there's another reality of when you're being introduced to somebody and they say, oh, oh uh, this is my dear friend, Alex. I mean, Chris, <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, what? really? Really? Wow. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I know we're friends. I know you, I know it was just, it was just this, uh, a flub, you know. But at the same time, there there's a part uh, of me that, because of the field that I happen to be in. And it it's not a field that I, I decided to be in because of my uncle. It's a, it's a field that I decided to be in anyway. As I said, when the, when, my great gra- when my grandmother gave me that book about African-American history, the Victoria Roots had not come out. Uncle Alex was not a huge name. I mean, he was doing things, but again, I was so young, I didn't know what he was really doing. I, knew, I, I think I knew he was a writer. I think I knew he did interviews for Playboy magazine, but I was too young to read Playboy magazine. So I just knew there was a backseat with pictures in it, but I wasn't supposed to read or, or watch this book. But I was still aware that he was doing something. And then for me, I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to write from... Probably, gosh, the first grade, second grade. I always wanted to do that. And I always was interested in African-American history. And as my life went further, that didn't change. Now, because Uncle Alex became huge, and we called him Uncle Palmer, by the way, (laughs) as a kid. We called him Uncle Palmer because that's the family name, as long as Alex is too, though. Then he became famous, and he was famous in the field of literature and famous with actors and actresses portraying his or my family members, then it seemed like that people thought, oh, well, Chris is doing this because his uncle was doing that and he's trying to catch on or, or succeed along the same lines of what his uncle And that's absolutely not true. And I don't I don't mean that in a resentful way. I just mean this is not true. It's just right. I was always of this mindset. And so there is always this, um, I think, certainly... For those who don't really know me, there might be this consideration. Oh well, yeah, he started to go that that route because his uncle was so famous doing this, that, and the other, and he felt like it was the thing to do. Uh, and then the the irony about that is that some of the people who say that will then go, "Well, you, you should be more famous. You should be well, well well known. You should be you should be you should be so more rich because wow. you're doing what he did." And believe me, if I knew the path to that easily. I would have taken it by now. <laughs> 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 I would have been on that train, choo-choo, <laughs> for sure. So, yeah, so it has been very challenging. And that's one reason why why creating things such as the, the poetry books that I've been putting out there, other books that I'm working on, being involved with Unmarked, uh, are, are, means so much to me as because they are things that I literally am doing myself. I literally have have created from a personal feel, feeling and desire that I always had. And, and, and now they're coming to fruition. And even though people will probably still say it, and I, it's, it would be ridiculous of me to say, don't mention it, will say, oh, by the way, he's also the this or that and the other, which is one of the reasons why I try to say it first, so people know I'm not trying to hide it is that it has always been my desire and my hope and the only thing that I can try to do is continue to do it because I because I've had that innate desire to create in those ways and to try to be as good at it as I possibly can because the only way to not do that is to totally say okay because Uncle Alex became famous as a writer and he's involved with theater or with, with movies, I have to be totally separate from that because people will always think that I'm only doing it because he was involved in that realm. And that would not be realistic. And that would be harder to harder to navigate than, than probably what I am doing right now. Yeah, I
0: watched Unmarked and we're going to get into that. I thought it was mm-hmm. great. And I thought it was uniquely... Chris Haley. I thought it was uniquely you, but at the same time, what's happened is, is because of your uncle Alex's fame and success, it's almost like the Haley family business is the business of African-American history. And Mm -hmm. everyone, yourself, Bill, everyone else involved, their job now is to continue on the family business, almost like if your great-grandfather was uh, a manufacturer, then right? Right. <laughs> you have to take over the job as a CEO and your literal job is not to run your grandfather's business into the ground. <laughs> so you right. can pass it <laughs> onto your son <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so that the manufacturing legacy can continue. So it's a right. bit of a catch, a catch 22. I do want to talk a little bit about your, your work as a historian because mm-hmm. it plays into the film unmarked in a, in a, meaningful way. You're on the board of the Kunta Kinte Alex Haley Foundation, and you actually got to go to Gambia to be part of um, the International Roots Festival. I've never been to Africa. I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Black folks that talk about Wakanda, and I laugh. (laughs) I I, kind of want people to stop talking about Wakanda. If you actually... If you take that place and 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 boil it down to what it was, it'd right. probably be a terrible place to live for liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah. mm-hmm.
0: that being said, I'm still very curious about what we don't understand about Africa and its culture that maybe you have a better insight on through your history and the fact that you got to visit. Mm-hmm. What would be something in your mind that you're like, most Americans and even Black Americans don't realize this about Africa mm-hmm. and wow, great culture? Uh-
1: I, I think part of it is just that it's. Um, it, it was I was very ha- I was very thrilled and very fortunate to be able to go to to the Gambia in 2016, in the, because the the current uh, the current administration wanted to incorporate and nurture a better communication with the Haley family partly because i think because the reimagining of roots was being was being produced at that time which did come out uh, yeah later on that year uh, but also because they realized that from a tourism point of view the village of zuferay was really one of if not the main thing that they had going for them as far as a draw to get people from many other nations to journey to this small country in, in the Western part in, of, of Africa. Within that, what I think that we uh, who live in the United States of America of African descent should realize or, or could realize is that is that if you go there, if you visit, that outside of the I'd say the smaller, smaller percentage, it is a very impoverished country. I mean, the Gambia is one of the most impoverished countries there. Now, perhaps to some degree it's because of the, the dictator who was in charge at the time that I was there, who has since been deposed. Part of it could have been from colonial dictates and restrictions that had been imposed from the beginning of, of, uh, say colonization that happened, I think in the late 19th century or so, That is, there are vestiges that are still there today. So there should, there should be that reality of when, you, of when you visit there, it's not going to be Wakanda. <laughs> You're not going to, to go to this wonderful land where it's all lush and, and, and the, the king is aware of everybody else and everyone lives and lets live you're going to find a, a very, I, I'd say for the most part, a a population that's, that's, I'd say some element would be proud and are proud, but some element are very much finding it hard to get by on a day to day basis. And it's very rural and it's, uh, I was very fortunate with my cousin Bill. We had a driver because we were the guests of the administration at that time, and we were, and so we were driven down the streets. And on the streets that we we were in the car driving, you would be in the street in your car along with people who were walking with cows and walking with donkeys, or they might have a um, a box or not a box, a basket. Of a produce on their heads, going through a marketplace or wherever they were, they were uh, handling their their farming business, their agricultural business, and you would have to be, you would feel. I mean, I know, I certainly felt kind of concerned about how fast the driver was going because I thought, wait a minute, there's this cow that's coming in the opposite direction. <laughs> there's, this there's a person with, oh my gosh, don't don't hit this person but they're so used to it. and that's the reality and on the sides you might see these the equivalent of huts with with thatched walls or fences that were there and you would think however much that we have issues with the uh equality or lack thereof of living as an African American in the United States of America in in many places it's not the same as this reality, which is for those persons who are living in this African nation uh, and in this African rural nation. And I think that's one of the things that that I would would have people be conscious of when when they go there, so that you're not your expectations aren't one thing and then you find out another. And it's not to say that people should be depressed by it or be or be ashamed of it and no one not at all but just to be aware of it when you when you go there and also know that that you as an american will still seem different to these persons who are native africans uh as a one example I i will give which was very surprising but one of my um uh, I, I guess another co- sort of a host. She she, she was a, a friend of a, of a family friend who was living there, and she had said to us, "You guys are going to be called two Bob. Just so you know that you'll be called <laughs> two Bob, because she was taking us a tour. She had a I think she had uh, f- founded a small school in in a area of the Gambia, and she was at, taking us on a tour with with our driver. And sure enough, we went to this one little little village where there's a school and there was these little kids who maybe they were five, six or seven running around. And literally we, we just got out of our car and walked around the village and these little kids just stared at us and stared and they pointed and they said, to Bob, to Bob, that for those of us who remember, remember Roots, I don't remember if it was in the, the roots 2016, but certainly in roots 1977, 77, 78 to Bob basically means white man. <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> that's, and I thought, well, I know I'm not the darkest person in the world, <laughs> but I thought, really, but it's like, they could see just for my dress or by my, my manner or whatever, that I was not native to their community. And I was, from somewhere else. And, and so that should also be something that that I think we who visit there from here should be aware of if, if we visit. And I, I would encourage visit visiting, I mean, mo, no doubt about it. I, I'm so happy that I went. Uh, and also the dollar here, the dollar here is worth so much more in the Gambia, I think it's called a, a dalasi. I think is what it is, and it's like a 37 to 1 ratio, which is to say, wow. if you have one dollar American dollar bill, it's equal to 37 dollars in, in the hotel where we stayed. If you're in the quote unquote black market, it might be worth 45 dollars. Mm-hmm. And my first realization of that is that I was at a hotel at the hotel we were staying, I got a ginger ale my first night there because. Uh, from the different um, nations or from being here to be there. You want to be careful of drinking the water, this, that, and the other. So I was well, going to ginger ale. And the bill came. And it was like 234 D-A-L-L. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> Talk about a tourist surprise. What does this mean? And then the person just told me, oh well, you just need to give us like five dollars or something like that. It's, oh, really? <laughs> that's what this means? But it is so you'll see these phenomenally high numbers, but it's because that's what the it's the, the currency is there. And so you as an American will go into the Gambia and you are a millionaire. Right, right. <laughs> you are your what whatever you might consider your situation here, your Per capita here is so much more for those persons who live in the Gambia. And, I, and I, I can't really speak for much of the rest of Africa. I've only been to the Gambia. But I, from what I understand, it might be similar to that in many other places as well.
0: Yeah, thank you, uh, International Monetary Fund, and uh, thank you <laughs> to, to Western militaries across the world for oh my inserting dictators across Africa that keep their money low and their people poor. But <laughs> <laughs> sure,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, I I, would, I have this vision of you watching the news mm-hmm. on a nightly basis and and wanting to scream at mm-hmm. the television set. How often do you find gaps between the history we were taught, Mm -hmm. just generally speaking, and the history you've discovered as an archivist?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the worst part is when it's one of the talk shows, and what I mean is like the talking head shows, where people are talking about points of view of why, oh, we're, we're it wouldn't, it's, racism wouldn't be an issue if you didn't bring it up and slavery wouldn't be an issue. And, and I was never, you were never enslaved. And, and if, and if, um, and my family would probably have been, would probably have been enslaved right along your family. And i am be like, Oh my God, really? Really? Do you truly <laughs> think that? Is that really what you think this is about? Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's very frustrating because it, it speaks to, To some degree, the the education system, which about I don't I don't know the actual curriculum of what's in schools right now, say for from K to 12 specifically, but I know based on when I've gone out to give talks to different schools, and I and I talk about slavery to to children as young as third grade, and I talk about genealogy to children as young as as uh, as preschool, is that I, I do get a sense that it's not spoken about a lot. So, or certainly not spoken about in depth. And so as much as there's this current discussion uh, about CRT and not talking about slavery or anything that might reflect badly on one group of people in, in, in comparison to another group of people, I think to myself, well, what about how long that this other group of people were not spoken about at all, that their history was totally excluded from history books or the, the educational narrative? to the point where there was no one that they could that they could aspire to be or that they could idolize. I mean, a, a black kid would have to idolize a George Washington, a Thomas Jefferson, a Benjamin Franklin, because there was nobody else that they could think of, that they could see that was being talked about over and over and over or, or written about over and over and over again in history books that they could connect with. What, what, what is that? Why is that okay? And the other where there's so many other examples is what is what we should hold on to. And, and, and that's ultimately, and I've said this more often than not in the last few, I'd say, or several months at this point, is that if we're going to not talk about one aspect of history, then let's not talk about the other aspect of history, too. Because the, the, there should be no difference. If ultimately you're trying to say, you who are against uh, critical race theory or whatever, or, or if you who are against talking about African-American history or slavery or what have you, if you're against that because you feel like it makes somebody feel bad, then then then, then, sh- then should we not talk about the Revolutionary War? Because I would think that the Revolutionary War would make people from Britain feel bad or people who are, have lineage to the royal family feel bad. So I guess we shouldn't talk about that because it would make them uncomfortable. We certainly shouldn't talk about the, the French Revolution because people who are, have any kind of relation to the aristocracy of the French Revolution, they would feel bad. It difference to the peasantry who rose up against them. So let's not talk about that. So it, it, it's history should never have been selective. And certainly for any of those persons who want to reach for this selectivity today and, and decry those of us who do talk about black history, uh, I'm thinking, well, why, why is it okay to talk about this aspect and not the other aspect? Because if you're talking about the pride of World War II and the United States of America and different allies defeating uh, Japan, then you would be making people of Japanese ancestry feel bad. So, but that's okay. So, so, so really, where, where is it okay to talk about history where you're trying to, to make, to instill pride in your nation, but not if it's the pride of this, in, this individual aspect or, or people in your history, if they are a part of your, your nation. Which is to say, you can't, you can't, if you want black people to consider themselves a part of the United States of America, and if you don't want them to keep the, keep thinking of them as separate, then don't say, don't talk about your specific history, which was hard. Right. And that seems to be where this current push is going. And it's well, What so- we have
0: a problem with, Chris, is we have a chasm of... Um, Of speed and accuracy of information. And I and it's going to continue to be a problem. Accurate information is going to be one of the most powerful elements of society, the ability to get it or not get it in the next 50 years. Because Mm -hmm. with the emergence of machine learning and artificial intelligence and the growth of the internet and social media. Information is coming from all over the place. It's harder, harder, harder and harder to verify. Yes. You know, we have a big pushback on critical race theory here where I'm at in Tennessee. The reason is because the people that are fighting against it don't even know how to define it. Mm-hmm. So they're picturing teachers being forced to teach sort of radical ideas, um, having the white children in the class on their knees, yes. and black people in class and like, just like this really weird thing. And, and if that were the case, I would say, yeah, we should fight against that. Yeah, should be exactly. in class. These are kids. Let's not indoctrinate children. Right. History shouldn't be politicized. Just teach what happened. Just teach what happened. Mm-hmm. And you can editorialize if you're a really great teacher. So great right. teachers are able to tell stories. If you're not a great teacher, you're not going to be able to tell a story very well. But if you are, you can tell a great story where everyone in the room kind of gets the idea of what went on, and nobody feels a sense of personal shame when they leave the classroom. Right. When I grew up and slavery was taught, it it made you feel ashamed as Mm -hmm. a Black person a lot of times. Uh, We don't want to do that to the white kids in class. We just Mm -hmm. want the history taught so that everybody understands what really happened and so that we're not erased from history in mm-hmm. this meaningful way, which is what your film partially uh, unmarked is about, and it's a really mm-hmm. nice segue going going into this conversation into the conversation about that film. Emmy nominated documentary short. You can watch it on Amazon. I watched it on iTunes. It's a three ninety mm-hmm. nine rent, no problem. Cost of a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, and you're watching right. this great film. So please, everyone, go out there and get it off iTunes or Apple Plus or Amazon. It will be worth it. I'm, I'm curious, how did you get involved in Unmarked? And as a second part of this question, why haven't we heard more about Unmarked slave graves nationally?
1: Great questions. Thank you for asking those. Uh, for, first, I, I, I grew. Brad Bennett is the. Creator of, the, creator of the idea. I don't know if that's exactly right. But anyway, I feel like I'm more his co-director than I am his, because he came to me with the idea uh, of this project that he was working on in 2017. He's from central, central Virginia, and he had read about some local volunteers who were about the effort of preserving local African-American cemeteries and he thought that was a very interesting idea and a very interesting project. He had submitted a film called Forgive Don't Forget to the Utopia Film Festival and I was serving then as I am today as executive director so within and that was about his lineage as a Japanese-American a person of Japanese-American descent and it ended up winning our our Utopian Vision Award, which is our best, our award for the best total film for the festival. Within the short weekend that we were together, he said, did you read my email? And I was, um, and I had not. Because in the course of the film festival, you get so many different emails and so many different people. They might be asking for waivers. They might be asking, well, have you come up with a decision yet or things of that sort And within the course of planning a film festival, there's so much to do. And so from from those of you uh, who are out there listening and are viewing today, just please know that from the planning point of view from a film festival, people aren't just sitting around doing nothing. (laughs) They're not just sitting around, oh, I'm gonna watch TV and then I'll get to their movie. Or I mean, there's so much that goes along and we really do have, I, I think very likely, a concentrated group of people who really try to send to spend time reviewing your your movie, your work, because they know how important it is for you. And, and we want to exhibit that the core thing is we want to exhibit your work as well. We that, that gives us joy, it gives me joy as the director of that film festival going into the 17th year on a bass plug. So <laughs> it's an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, right. Plug, Thank plug you. on. Yeah. right. right. So uh, it happened November 19th to November 20, 21st of this year. So anyway, um, so within that, he sent it to me and he and I said, no, I, I'm not really sure, Brad. What, what what did you send me? He said, well, I was asking you about this project. If you might be interested, because I had researched what you do and do, do your job as a director of the study of the legacy of slavery in Maryland at the Maryland State Archives. And I was wondering if you might be interested. So I read about it. And, and his email, and the idea just struck me immediately because from a genealogical point of view, which is also something I've always been uh, interested in, which is my my ancestry, and this even reaches back to your other question about uh, my quote about I'm not trying to do um, my history all over again or what have you. It's that people were asking me to to sort of redo roots or redo... And I thought, why should I do that? It's been done. I'm looking at my mother's side of history. So within doing that, one of the main things I felt joy in and pleasure in and satisfaction in in is when I was able to go to an actual cemetery where my ancestors were buried or where I believed that my ancestors were buried. Because for many of us who are doing African-American genealogy, or quite frankly, any genealogy, I mean, because Roots is about... Specifically, an African American family, but it speaks to everyone who's doing genealogy is the reality that some of these people we never have seen, we never have found an image of them or photograph of them. So it's only a census record, it's only a, uh, I don't know, a, a death certificate, it's only a Prayer notice. So, if you can go to a spot where at least there's a, a marker, a gravestone where they have been laid to rest, I feel like that helps affirm that they lived because this is where they were laid to rest. And for me, that has often meant so much to me just going to a, a gravesite of someone who was my ancestor. So within Unmarked, it also struck with me because there's persons in my family who I have no idea where they are buried, where they are laid to rest. And all I know are stories. All I know are are all I found have been genealogical records, such as census records or marriage records or, or certificates. And it would mean so much to me if I could find the space where they are laid to rest because it would it would. It would indicate a connection with me to that individual and, and would, would represent a, a, I hate to say reality, it's not like I, I'm doubting it, but just a visceral feeling of finding them. And I said in some interview the other day, uh, that it's like, it differs to looking at these secondary sources of a census record such as that it's that I see you because now I'm at the place where you're laid to rest so if you believe in the holy spirit or whatever then at this moment where I'm at your gravesite the portals have opened and that person now sees me and now they see me looking at them and so if you say And so many persons, we go through those moments where we go to a gravesite, Father's Day, Mother's Day, what have you, and we go there and we talk to our loved ones at the cemetery, at their gravesite. We want to believe that they're listening to us at that moment. So for me, Unmarked represented an effort for those persons we covered and for us as filmmakers to try to reinforce the the validity, the um, the spirituality, the, the right to go forward and try to open that portal again so that you could connect with that individual and how challenging it is and how worthwhile it is to try to identify as many of these unmarked graves as possible because there's a lot of people who who have been laid to rest, certainly enslaved individuals, such as we have um, alluded to before, whose history has been, for the most part, erased, purposely erased, who want to be heard again, who want to be acknowledged, perhaps for the first time. And so unmarked, is as one, there's a line in there somewhere, and maybe it's the last night, so that they will be unmarked no more. That yes. you, there they are, here they are. I see you and now you see me. And, and it's, so it's reaching for that connection. At risk of
0: insulting my own intellect, <laughs> I, I wonder why, it's Like this was a new phenomenon to me. hmm so at risk of insulting myself, I have to admit this, this was something I was not fully aware of. The idea that you guys could find 3,300 unmarked graves in just one area uh, is mind-boggling. And mm-hmm. why, why is it possible for me to be made aware of this only now? in a world full of information sharing that's constant and you're it's a deluge of information. Everybody knows a little bit about everything now, even if it's just rote memory. And this was kind of a new idea. So I was really intrigued watching the film. Why is it like that? Why are so many people unaware that this many people can be sort of risen from the dead,
1: so to speak? Right. Well, I think part of it is, it's the reality of what slavery was and and if you are aware or can and think in terms of just the, the the I'm going to say logistics which sounds very modernistic but of of life so to speak the cycle of life so just in Maryland alone there were roughly Oh, I'm, if I'm doing this right, 4 million people who were enslaved, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. I don't, at, the, at the time that the Civil War happened, there were 87,000 persons who were freed by the passage of the 1864 Maryland Constitution, November 1st, 1864. So prior to that, obviously there were many, many, many other hundreds of thousands of individuals who had been enslaved from the beginning of race-based slavery in Maryland from 1664 through 1864, hundreds of thousands. Where were they buried? Chances are they were buried where they were enslaved. Now do we think that those enslaved persons had the wherewithal to to afford to make on their own the the stone markers with engravings for all of those individuals who would have passed away between for those 200 years. It's, it's very unlikely if at all, that that would have happened. There are some examples of perhaps someone who was considered very special or close to the family of the enslavers who might have a stone, but for the most part, it wasn't. There might be just a stone there or there might be, or they might be buried in a, in a wooden box uh, underground. And then through the course of the years then, and the course of weather eroding, then trees or branches or, or roots uh, have broken through where these people are, are have been laid to rest. And so, and because of the dirt that's on pop, on top of the perhaps the coffin, or the, that the wooden box has the through the years has broken through. Uh-huh. So you'll have all these uneven spaces. So, if we're aware of the enormity of slavery, especially in those in those southern states where it existed up up until the eighteen sixties the northern states would well, existed prior to that probably till the end of the 1780s as though i think is when gradual emancipation began to happen in places such as new york and new jersey and rhode island and those northern states then where these persons were enslaved they would have also have been buried but would they have been buried in places where they would have been as ornately marked as those who were free white citizens or mm-hmm. the movers and shakers of it. Obviously not. They, they just would not have had the means to have had that, those, uh, that capacity. So that's why this is a reality. Now, why it is that people are not so much aware of it is that I just think that for those of us who are genealogists, or those of us who are family researchers, we are we are very happy, and there's nothing wrong with that, being very happy with finding a death certificate, with finding a marriage record, with finding someone listed in a in a federal census. We don't think in terms of, well, I wonder where they're buried. Right. I wonder where if, if we think in terms of, well, how long did they live? who who came after them, but we don't think in terms of, could I find their final resting place as kind of a karmic, as I said before, connection to their existence in this world? We don't think in those terms, because we don't think in that term, that we don't think in a reality that they were buried somewhere, because I would say, and I don't know this uh, specifically, I haven't studied this, but I've got to figure that as unlikely as it is that an enslaved person would have had a a marker um, with with etching on it, it's even less likely that they would have been cremated outside of lynchings, but that's a whole different situation. Uh, So they probably were buried somewhere and maybe they were buried on the grounds of the plantation, large or small, where they were enslaved. And that would have been an approximate to where the main house would have been and, and to the grounds where where I believe this is true, where the enslaver could have seen or the former could have seen what was going on just to make sure there was no, no, no um, I don't know, out of control, uh, rebellions, escape plans going on or what have or to make sure that it really was a, a cemetery or a, a funeral service that was going on and nothing else, which would be scary to the people who were their slavers. So in and it of itself, it's not, I don't think it's surprising that many people are not aware of what, of the enormity of the amount of unmarked graves there are because it's not where our mind goes. Right. Our mind doesn't go that far back. It goes to the persons, where our grandparents, maybe our great-grandparents, people that we knew where did they where were they buried but we're not we're not inclined to think in terms of people who lived before us 100 or so years ago or or even more we just don't think in those terms and because of that it allows more fields more cemeteries to remain unmarked to remain unpreserved to to fall into disrepair because no one is thinking about them and no one is trying to find them. So the fact that it's happening more and more now is great and is wonderful. And I think it will help. It, it will help reinforce the the pride that I feel like persons of African descent have begun to have probably since Roots came out about their lineage and about their heritage and about who they are today. Because by honoring who your ancestors were, you honor who you are today. And I know that almost sounds cliche nowadays, but I do think that yeah. that, is, that is a reality about, about this type of research or, or, or pursuing these type of efforts to, um, to, make people, to make sure people are recognized as having existed. Yeah, I, I I definitely
0: agree. If someone wanted to take this on and expand it beyond Virginia, mm-hmm. how would they know if a cemetery is a family grave site mm-hmm. or a
1: slave grave site? Wow. Well, there's two ways, and, and none of them are easy, but, but I'd say one thing is that you could go through the you can go through this federal census of say around 1860 and find those individuals who were who were the families of enslaved persons and um and see where are they buried or where where did they live where where are they where were their homes and then where their homes are located where would th- where would their families have been buried which is to say, if you're a family of the, so I'm just trying to grab something off here, of the, the, the Smith, the superior family, if this <laughs> is an awful word, uh, let's say that the Westbury family, that's the word. Let's say the Westbury family, the Westbury's of, of Georgia. So the Westbury's of Georgia have this, this uh, home in in Richmond County, uh, Richmond County, Georgia. So you go to to, to the, what the, the cemetery indicates was the plantation was the area where the Westbury's lived. So if you're able to find from that, how much acreage do they have, then look around there and see if there's some fenced in area and there's um, father Westbury, mother Westbury, sissy Westbury, whatever, and then look to see if that's a family grave, And if that is on the grounds of that plantation, and, and we should remember that Many people did not have a lot of enslaved people. I mean, I think the average was one to three uh, enslaved persons. It wasn't all terror and gone with the wind. It really wasn't. Then perhaps somewhere approximate to that would be where their enslaved workers would have been buried as well. And then, then you sort of look for the, I'd say, topographical examples or symbols that would lead you to that that knowledge. And that usually is the uneven terrain, uh, uh, where there's a, a big tree that's probably been around forever because there would be markings where the persons who were there would know, I could go to this area to pay respects to who passed away because I'm not going to have these different symbols that are going to last through the test of time. But I know this tree is gonna be here for, for many, many, many years ago. I know this huge boulder is gonna be here for many, many years ago. I know this ridge, this, this uh, landscape is, uh, is going to be here for many, many years to go. So that might be the area and where the individuals were were buried. So I think that's kind of how you'd have to go about it. First, you would find out where the persons could have been enslaved and then that t- that land, and then around those grounds would probably have been where they might have been buried. Outside of if you have an actual cemetery or the churches, because there certainly are some churches that that might have had enslaved people buried or fr- or people who have been freed buried as well. But that should be easier to find. Uh, easier, being a, in quotes to find in some of what we're talking about and some of what Mark was talking about, or is talking about.
0: Thank you for that. That's going to be, I know, useful to someone listening who wants to I- embark on this good work. Speaking of good work, you mentioned how difficult it is and how busy it is to be an executive director for a film festival. Mm-hmm. You have put on the Utopia Film Festival now for 17 years it's upcoming in november i believe november 19th through the 21st -hmm. super excited for you why is it called the utopia film festival
1: greenbelt maryland was which is where it's located was created in 1936 i think 34 36 around that time as one of the three green cities under the Frederick Rose Franklin, Frederick <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt administration, uh, and in the idea that they would they would create a utopian community where people worked with each other, that people um, socialized with each other, communicated with each other, and helped everyone survive and thrive. So with now that said, I don't think any black people were allowed. <laughs> There's a, this aspect of that. That's the reality. You're going to have
0: perfect utopia as long <laughs> yeah, right. as there aren't any black people here. Right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> but that, and just like you, you, obviously, when we talk about the uh, Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration of Independence for the for the colonial white people from the English white people? I mean, that's really what it was. That's Hell really yeah. what it was. That's, that's right. <laughs> Uh, so, we wanted to primarily promote, as we were conceptualizing the, the film festival, the theory, the spirit of how Greenbelt was formed, uh, as informed in the idea of a utopian vision of community. So, ultimately, although many of our movies are just for entertainment value, they can, they're funny or this, that, and the other, but I'd say, The movies that most reflect, such as "Forgive, Don't Forget," did, and some other movies that we have had since then reflect either a an effort, an ongoing effort of filmmakers of a a filmmaker's project, which is addressing a current need, a current issue that is about the embitterment of, uh, of a situation or what have you. It could be the LGBT community. It could be an immigration situation, uh, things of that sort, to, toward making the world a better place or toward envisioning the world in a in a more utopian manner. So that's, as much as anything, the type of movies that we try to find for the Utopia Film Festival. The first name was Utop the Greenbelt Utopia Film and Video Festival, which shows you how long ago it was that we were talking about film and video. Yeah. But we just thought it was easier just to, to cut it to Utopia Film Festival. It didn't it didn't limit it to one city or what have you, but also just made it more universal in its um in its view and in its scope.
0: Yeah, later on we'll ask you for the web address to the film festival so people can attend in person or virtually if if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is a poimoir and why did you coin the term? Okay.
1: Okay, literally poimoir is, is a is a term that was that I thought I had coined it, but then I but that that's one thing that you do when you're a writer, or at least I've done when I'm a writer. It's that, wow, this sounds really catchy. This is really cool. I wonder if I'm making this up and then i but i before i i said that i thought well let me look online to see if it's anywhere there and it's because of a review i i received from my book uh i think until the right one comes along where the reviewers said it's more of a memoir than a poetry book and i was thinking oh a memoir poetry book a memoir than poem. so i was thinking about, oh wow that's a great term but I thought, no, let me just double check. And evidently, it's already in the dictionary or just <laughs> the source or whatever. I thought, oh, gone. I kind of made up a word. And so what it really is, is a poetry which which is based, I guess, very much more clearly on life experiences, which I feel like so many poems are that way. So I don't really know how how one differentiates itself from another. But I know many of the ones that I have are almost like therapy sessions where I try to put them to prose or or sometimes to lyrical verse or something like that, trying to put it out there and uh, to see if it may be within putting it to on page or on, on screen where I can sort of understand the situation better as I reflect upon it. So that's really what it is. It's it's like poetry based on life experiences, whereas a memoir is your sort of re- recounting your life story. This is recounting your life story, in more, in more short pieces of um, of I, I guess one could say paragraphs or whatever, and that's what it seems. I have done uh, mostly with these books. I've I have put out. I'm trying to put out moving forward. Although there are some which are very much just reflections on other events that were going on.
0: I know you have a third poetry book on the way. The two you have mm-hmm. on Amazon now are obsessions, and until the right one comes along, both are uh, rated. Uh, As uh, at the top, so five stars. And uh, both are, I would say, definitely fall into the realm of poem wire. There was one poem that really I related to, and it jumped out to me. And it's called If I Could. And I want to read a little bit of it here. Mm -hmm. If I could die for just a little while and briefly take a break. If I could close my mind, my consciousness, meditate on a lake, if I could dial down the volume of voices, screaming daily woes, if I could gently close my eyes, no tears, no cries, no nightmares to hide, I think I would feel better. My passion would return. I'd breathe a life renewed, my candle not all burned. And dreams would reawaken me to the future I'd once yearned of grand occasions, Oscar nominations, standing ovations, devoted fans, a beloved man, beautifully free of strife. If I could wake to that, I'd beat this desperate rap, dash my suicidal sway, I'd drink life's sap. I'd safely nap. I would not end today. What what great words. Um, what what inspired the poem? And do you feel like
1: your best work is in front of you or behind you? Uh, you you're, that's a very good read of that. I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's like you, you write these things, you're like, gosh, I wonder how this would sound for other people, especially because sometimes I write um, scripts and things of that sort. And it's really not so much about what's in your mind, but how will this if it works, how does it work through somebody else's words? And does it still say what you're saying? And you did. So thank you very much for that. Uh, what did, what, yeah, I I think what it did, what is, is that there now part of it, I think that the older you get, and, and from the artistic point of view too, there's a lot of self um well, right. self-dictated or self pressure that you put on yourself to create and to create and to be good and to be worthwhile and to to do something noteworthy it's to to be noticed I guess and for something that's positive and in different in negative and then wondering if what you have created is worth it and so for myself and I think regardless of even the the, the family connection there's always, and from what I understand, because I, I grew up reading a lot of books about, hist- about history and also a lot of books about, about famous writers and actors. And so you think, ultimately, depending on how your life is going, am I any good at this? <laughs> uh, and yeah. so, because of that, you start wondering, and I think I start, started wondering. Am I wasting my life? Have I wasted my life? Is this something that that I should continue to do or is there something that's easier? Is there something that I think we alluded to earlier that I could just clock in nine in the morning, clock out at five, make however many Gs I'm going to make and just, um, and just be happy with the beer, watching football or what have you and not worry about, creating something that people such as yourself can read so eloquently and make you feel like, Hey, that was pretty good. Wow. That that (laughs) would work. I'm really glad that worked. But there's a lot, uh, certainly for myself where I think, is this working? Is this good? Is this just self-flagellation or, or is this actually poetic? Is this actually art? And so because of that, there's, there's the element of that I think I was certainly going through, and this might be maybe it's three years ago, something like that, um, that I was doubting whether I had had taken the, 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 ultimately what would have been the best career path, even though it may have been my hard career path, maybe there was a practical career path that would have been easier for me to take, uh, which would have been more about, the X's and O's, in difference to the theoretical esoteric. Uh, this is how I feel. The, the sky is blue. This the, the sun is. red, <laughs> uh this, that, and the other. And so that that was making my mind has made my mind very busy. And so when your mind is so busy, it's so busy. Double. Double thinking everything. And from an artistic point of view, and I think for so those of you who are who are again listening or, or watching, who are trying to create the perfect movie, the best film, the best screenplay, to put together the best group of people to create your vision, every single day you do that, how many are those of those moments that you create? Do you not go into the next day and think, "Oh, but I could have done that better." I should have had him read that line one more time. I should have tried the lighting a different way. I should have shot this in black and white. I should have made that a close up, not a long shot. I, you know there's so many things that go into your head, and i and I think that there's people that i I know of who who I feel are very much more this is what I did, and I'm okay about it. Yeah, it's out there. And I'm cool and I'm and I'm letting it go. It's out in the atmosphere, and I can be free of what people think about it or what people are concerned about it. And I am still struggling to get to that point. I'm still challenged with trying to, to accept my trying to write or my writing or my creating a movie or as being an expression of my art, whatever it is, a yeah. difference to hoping that people will like what I do or appreciate what I do, whatever it is. And so within that mindset, I think if I could, was that if I could take a break from overthinking things and take a break to just a, a, from feeling that things have to be a certain way and just appreciate the fact that you at least have found something that you like to do. You, you like to write you like to help filmmakers get their movies exhibited. You like to talk about African-American history, although sometimes it's very challenging <laughs> to do that. But but you have found what you like to do. So try not to judge what you're doing while you're doing it. And, and I thought that if I could, was just that, you know, just to go there, Sylvia Plath. Ernest Hemingway, uh, you know, some of the big people who, uh, Virginia Woolf, some of the huge, iconic literary figures who who we know were very cerebral in their work, and yet it seemed like they were tearing themselves up inside. Right. Because they were questioning and probably self-editing everything they wrote, and living everything they wrote. So I mean, and how theirs aren't memoirs aren't too? I'm not really sure, but but within that, it seems that they could not take a break, and ultimately the only break they took was committing suicide. Right. And so, I guess the crux of that poem was that no it's not that i want to commit suicide it's just that i'd like to be able to stop thinking so hard about what i'm doing and what i'm trying to do and just relax for a while and just and just go to a a a a non-dangerous coma coma place for a while where i could just be like okay i'm just going to relax for a while and just not going to worry about it and then when i come back out I will be writing again and I'll be having fun again and this, that, and the other. And I could write about the fact that I took a, a two-week coma break <laughs> from, from things that I was doing. And so that it wouldn't be, I guess the thing that, so that people wouldn't think that, that the artistic path or the artistic journey so often has to be a fatalistic one. Right. It's it does it's it's not that it, it, it even is a desire to be fatalistic. It's a desire to be. Um, it's a desire to be. Oh, it's not even positive. To be, uh, to be worthwhile. A desire to be specifically, oh, of quality, and this and the doubt that goes into that reality or seeking that reality is what makes one think, boy, oh, I wish I just I wish I I wish I could not care about it so much. I think that's probably what it comes
0: to. Well it, it goes part and parcel with the thing that every artist is aware of. I look, I'll admit I'm I'm hyper aware, hyper conscious mm-hmm. of the fact that me doing these deep dive long form interviews mm-hmm. is proof that I existed it's yeah. proof that I had an opinion it's proof that I had an education that I had people who were willing to speak to me and bear their soul to me and vice versa but with that comes the idea that it that if that's the case it cannot be trite yeah and it and it, and it can't be bad and mm-hmm. I, it's a living record of of me being an idiot I, I don't want that <laughs> right like like i want a living record of of me being someone like you said worthwhile someone worthy of being remembered and i think that's the the catch 22 of of maybe being an artist in general uh what you said earlier reminded me of uh frank ocean's blonde album at the end there's a secret track i don't know how secret it is it's just kind of a pause and then it starts yeah. and it's basically Uh, this kid going around interviewing other kids. And one of the questions he asks is if you could pick one superpower, what would it be? Hmm. And the kid replies to be able to sleep without dying, like sleep forever without dying. So I I thought that's a pretty awesome superpower to sleep as long as you want without dying. It really reminds me of your poem. If I could, Um, you've been so generous with your time, Chris, Uh, you, this has been an incredible interview. I, I've learned so much, an incredible conversation, more specifically. I'd love to take you through some quick speed round questions and then we'll get you out of here. Uh, What are the best two pieces of advice you've received in your career and who did they come from? Wow. Oh God,
1: it's so good. <laughs> and you said this is speed <laughs> round. Ah, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> Oh, what was the best? Oh, and that's a very good question. What is that? Oh, okay. One of the best, best pieces of advice, which is one reason why I do have two poem books out there right now and, am looking hard at getting another one out, I guess, hopefully by the end of the year, is that one of my dear friend's father, who is also a self-published author, said to me at one point when I was struggling about, and I was sharing how I was, I was trying to take a class on uh, Udemy about how to do um, uh, what is it about how to format, how to use Adobe Photoshop or Adobe Illustrator to format my book so that I could put it out on on Amazon myself. And he was saying, he said, no, he said, and editing and self-editing too. He said, no, he said, that's not, he said, I hired this person in New York to do my editor. I was very happy with her. Yes, it cost me a couple of bucks, but but it's like, I'm not trying to spend my life. It's not my forte to be an editor. What I'm trying to do is write a story. I'm trying to write this, this experience that I lived through and leave it to somebody else to be the editor to go back over that. And then are you trying to be a graphic artist? Are you trying to be a, an illustrator? What you are is a writer, you know, or you're an actor or you're a filmmaker. So wh- why are you... Spending money, why are you going uh stressing yourself out, trying to learn this other field, which is taking you more time and and making you more frustrated than finding someone who can do this for you? And and I thought, gosh, that makes so much sense. Yes, it does cost money because it's because you're trying to save money by trying to do it yourself. But at the same time, it's frustrating because you're trying to do something other than create. Because as he was saying, you're a creator. So create, let somebody else complete it. So that's what really helped a lot. So I, I, first I hired the same editor that he had (laughs) to to edit the, the, I guess two or three books that I have, some of them haven't even come out yet, Uh, to do that. And I feel so much better that it's done and I feel confident that it's in the right format that it needs to be. And then I've hired a a friend of mine who is also self-published, his now former girlfriend, had um, was a graphic designer, and so I hired her to, to formulate my book's obsessions and until the right one comes along into both the final paperback format for Kindle direct publishing, correct print, direct print, and also for the, the Kindle version. And uh, now I have another friend of mine who has alerted me to a, a publisher out of India where she had her book published and she said, I'm through, they were publisher poetry. And so I submitted three of my poems among, which was, if I could, to this company out of India. And so they say they'll publish my next book of poetry. So it's just so much better that I decided to take that on. And I would say to anyone who's out there, it is hard to do because sometimes as a filmmaker, you wanna do everything, but I don't think that's the best. Uh, Do you really wanna direct? Do you really wanna produce? Do you really wanna act? to try to focus on that and have somebody else do it. So that's the one thing. Uh, the second thing is that, gosh, what would be the second thing? Um, I don't know. That was That's the most immediate one that that has come to me that I thought was really great. I mean, the other one would probably be trust your tuition, even when you don't want to trust your tuition.
0: Yeah. I, and
1: I feel like that might be, I don't remember who exactly that came from. But... Um, it it, it might have been from a therapist, <laughs> it uh. might have been from a, from a friend, it might have been just another part of my brain. After you found out that you were that your intuition was right, but that's what I probably would say It's like really, really trust your intuition. Or the other thing is, I think what Oprah said, and if Oprah said it first, when somebody reveals to you who they are, believe them. <laughs> <laughs> That's that often has come
0: true. That really actually has been very true in my life as well. Um, Who would you like to emulate or most like to emulate and who do you most admire in the world of entertainment and, and film or writing or art and what do you think they do from a technical standpoint that sets them apart?
1: I would say, and this is kind of contradictory in a word, in a way, but of, of, there's, there's several different people, but I would say among the, among the people that I admire a lot right now, Tyler Perry, and, and I will say specifically because, and this is something that I hope is happening for me or will happen for me, is that you create what you want to create and, and just keep creating it. And the audience will find you in difference to creating something, tailoring it for a specific audience do what you do, and and I guess what I could say if it's meant to be, the people will find you, and you will be revealed, and it will be successful for you. Because I do, I do ultimately believe and want to believe, certainly, that you whatever gifts you're given, like right now, your gift as a as a podcaster, as an interviewer, is something that should should put you on the path to Oprah wealth you know, to, to, <laughs> to, the, to the Oprah world, because I feel like you're good at it. And, and your research, and obviously you. the research you've done is very good. Uh, some of the things I'm like, Oh wow. He, he looked at that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, that that's out there. Um, is that it, it will, even if it doesn't ultimately give you buckets and buckets and buckets of money, then it should fulfill you internally. So I think that that's part of it. And because Tyler Perry, I feel from the back of his car, from what I understand, or from um, or just finding local venues, which are pri- primarily African or black oriented, created his plays, which are, quite frankly, very. I won't say they're melodramatic. They were melo- they were melod uh, <laughs> with uh, with Medea and all that stuff. Right people came to people found it and people just started liking it and he started loving it and and he built his audience and and now he's a billionaire by building his audience he didn't go to hollywood first he didn't go this than the other he built it on a more local community word of mouth type of um of of backing and even little Nas from one little Nas started as a media person. I mean, his own just putting himself on LinkedIn, not LinkedIn on, um, TikTok and things of that sort. And so, and people found him and now he's a big deal. And I feel like that's something that I want to feel that with my poetry books, it, because it, ultimately I'm like, is this good? Is that not good? I, sometimes I just don't know. I just feel like it's, it's ultimately what I want to say. And, And I hope that people will ultimately appreciate it and like it. And if it's meant to be, then something will go viral and then everything will be out there. And then everybody will be scrutinizing every single word I said and every single where the comment appears and all that kind of stuff. But but not so much to be worried about, can I get it to this company? Can I get it to that producer? Can I get it to that company? And so filmmakers, it's not being the next Spielberg, being the next um, uh, Coppola, or Ava DuVernay be be the be the you, and then if you just keep being the you, then hopefully the audience will find you, and the and the producers will find you. And they, I mean, even who who remembers that Justin Bieber was just doing, just singing songs on YouTube, and then I guess Usher found him. I mean, who would have thought? Or Scooter Braun, yep. Yeah, I mean, yep. who, who would think that? But that but that's what happened. So I think that's the part of the, the, what I I'm trying to hold on to now. When I see other people who are out there, I think Charlie Puth is an, another who's doing a lot of stuff on his own within his studio. And I'm thinking that's cool because now he went to a really really nice school, college of I, of musical arts. And um,
0: yeah, yeah, he's a he's actually like a, a virtuoso. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's got, so he's he not starting yeah. at ground four. He's got a lot of talent. But like hanging out with Jacob
0: Collier and like people like that. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: People who are kind of almost considered geniuses, quite frankly. Right,
0: right. Quincy Jones. um,
1: Yes, but but, but he is sort of creating his own product and and people are finding him. So I think that's part of it. It can make the journey easier. I think if you start thinking like, this is what I want to create, keep creating it. Yeah, be you and people will find you. Right.
0: Um, if we wanted to dig into the history of African-Americans in America, well, that kind of was redundant. If we wanted to dig into the history of African-Americans uh, online or in libraries or in archives, what are the three best resources? If I want to just get started with this and, and take it on as a hobby or something even
1: more, are there three resources you can give us to get started? Well, one that I would get, and it's, it's not the most it doesn't give the most information, but I think it's very good to just get a sense of it. It takes a little while to get used to it is the international slave trade database, Mm -hmm. which is available online. And that one, I mean, the Lord Ligonier ship is, is mentioned on there. And, and you can get a sense of not even get a sense. You get a listing of the ships that left from whichever port they left uh, internationally like if they departed london then where did they disembark did they, and did they disembark in Annapolis Maryland so to speak how many persons were on board the ship now not by name but just the number of persons who were on, who were boarded on the ship how many people survived the voyage to to disembark on the um, wherever they disembarked the name of the the um, the captain of that ship And also what I found was very amazing is that some of these ships, it has listed whether a slave rebellion happened on them or not, which I was absolutely thrilled with, but also surprised that it listed that. And I feel like part of the reality of that is that many of these ships were ensured by by backers or what have you. So there would have been documentation as to if there was some kind of disruption that happened aboard the ship, which would have explained why there was a decrease in the amount of cargo whether human cargo or molasses or rum or sugar what have you that was also on board that ship so i think the international safe trade database which i believe is free online the um what's another really good source um there's something called which we are a part of the maryland state archives we're part of enslaved.org uh-huh. and that's another online database which is trying to bring all of these different various sites, such as as a Maryland State Archive site, bring access to all of these different runaway ads, domestic traffic ads that have been mined through different areas. Like ours is primarily Maryland, of course. Uh, this... University of Virginia, I think has done some. Certainly the the Georgetown project has has been well at hand well working trying to identify those individuals who are who are linked to the university, well, Georgetown University and their history. Because within a runaway ad, within a domestic traffic ad, within certificates of freedom, within manumissions, are many. Names of both the enslaved, the enslavers, and and demographic identifications uh, or or qualities of the individuals, which would say such as they might say a person is dark skin, light skin, uh, high yellow, mm-hmm. um, uh, flat nose, scars here there. It's very dis- descriptive of the individuals, and also it will be it will name many individuals within a runaway ad if, if, if they are there to be found. And sometimes generations will be named in a runaway ad. There's one wow. ad. I remember three generations, a mother, two sisters and a child. So that's a grandmother, a, uh, no, a grandmother, a daughter and a child. So that's three generations in one ad. That's amazing to find that. So that's enslaved.org. And um, other than that, I'm not really sure I I don't want to keep giving people websites but um but I feel like that's more universal at least even if you go to a library mm-hmm. if you don't have your own computer access at home if you go to the library you should be able to have access to the library um other than that see I go to the site but it, it's it's not really about African American history it's about history in general just to give a perspective of of the economics and that's Measuringworth.com. Got it. Measuring com, And that's what I use a lot because when I do talk about slavery, I, I always want to, to remind people about that this was a business. Uh, however much people want to talk like, well I didn't own an, I didn't own any enslaved people and, and you were never enslaved and I would never have done it, this, that and the other. I try to remind them and said, okay, well yeah, but but let's let's remember that what it was about it was about money and it was about these people were considered product and these people were considered very valuable product and with the measuringworth.com you're able to compare say in eight in 1860 the average cost of or the average value of an enslaved person was eight hundred dollars the equivalent of that in 2020 is Approximately, I think I looked at this the other day, like $25,000. Yeah. So, how how readily would you have given up this $25,000 piece of property uh, because you were stricken with uh, remorse or more? Or, or <laughs> would you have tried to justify the fact yeah. that you had this $25,000 piece of property because you weren't talking about. You knew it was a man, but you weren't valuing them as a man. You were valuing them as an enslaved piece of property that you could buy and sell and that gave you importance because you owned this other person. So those would be three. I mean, there's different books out there that are, I think, worthwhile, certainly as well. Um but I'd say those are the three sites that I would go to and to tr- try to expand it on a more, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, on a, on a more factual level, in difference to Ibram X Kindi. If you want to go to him <laughs> to try to get more of the more of the backstory and more of the philosophical and yeah. stuff going on, you know. But as far as just here's the facts. <laughs> that I think these are some of the sites that can just give you the facts.
0: And for those listening, those three, again, were the International Slave Trade Database, enslaved.org, and measuringworth.com. Chris yes. Haley, you are the man. Thank you so much. Uh, can you tell everybody where to find you on social media, on the internet, or maybe even see some of your work?
1: Okay. The, uh, many different places, because I'm a hyphenate, uh, but my website is Chris Haley Speaks at gmail.com chris haley speaks at gmail.com unmarked as you said is on iTunes, Amazon, there's three things. iTunes, Amazon and Apple Plus or Apple TV and uh, my books are available on Amazon until the right one comes along and Obsessions which which I feel really good about too because that actually also speaks about what was I'd say the last big racial divide, which was the O.J. Simpson trial. Which, yeah, I remember that I wrote about that, and I was that was that was really rough for those of us who lived through <laughs> it. That was a really rough period. The O.J. Simpson trial.
0: It was a fascinating time in America for sure. I, I'll never forget being in high school. I was in a classroom when the verdict came out, mm-hmm. and my English teacher started weeping. Uh, at the verdict she was crying she's a white lady yeah. she was crying and had to leave the classroom and i went out into the hallway and black kids were running down the hallway with their hands up like they just won the lotto wow. and i was like what is that about and then like you didn't win anything and then yeah uh, i'd heard that in another classroom a teacher had flipped his desk over when the verdict came out, I got like, flipped his desk over. And wow. so it was just a really weird time. By the way, you gave Chris Haley speaks at gmail.com, which is your email address. Yes. That's oh. for people to contact you, but, all is right. it? but it's Chris Haley.com. Just to. No,
1: Chris Haley.com the- is the website. Thank you very much yeah. for catching that. <laughs> Cause I get all these emails. Like who is this person? <laughs> yeah. Chris. Oh, is it. Yeah. Chris Haley speaks.com is a website. Right. Now you can email me off of that website too, which is probably easier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It'll be great. It'll be great. People can reach out to you, learn a lot from you. It'll be wonderful. And why don't we end on this? I was hoping you could do us the the wonderful blessing of reading your wonderful poem and an African-American dream in 2018. um,
1: If you don't mind. Uh, Okay. I found it. An African-American Dream of 2018. I had a dream last night. I was hanging with the elite, eating high, drinking fine, on a sofa, on a patio, by a pool big as a sea. But I became drowsy. We became drowsy. It seemed inappropriate to me that I should spend the night with my new fellows, though they were comforting as could be. So dark as it was, shadowed as I was, by moonlight sparkling above me, I tiptoed running to the long gated corridor like a kid afraid he'd broken curfew. I looked all the way down to the opening to the grounds where there was security. I was scared. I was frightened. They might not fully see me. Though I was a guest among their best, Obscured by dark, what would I be? Even in the light, I'd be a scuttling nigger and frightening for their lives, they'd shoot me. In this dream, something happened. An alarm alerted the guards, there was a frenzy. I didn't cause it, it was sparked by something else, but still, dogs and lights, steeled for a fight, a small army gathered at the gate. I pressed against the wall, cold and flat. I thought if I lay like that, a short time would lapse, they'd be less busy. All would be calm. They laid down their arms. I could walk out free and easy. But a cop saw the light. My cell phone reflected in the night and ran fast approaching me. I held up my arm, said I meant no harm. My iPhone innocently gleamed, but some behind him shot. He fell on the spot. I guess they blamed me. I heard the retorts, but felt nothing short of the dread I feared being seen. Then on my phone's face, Blood splashed quickly and I could taste warm liquid in my mouth. I passed out. Another dangerous African-American armed with what looked like a weapon erased. These are my dreams of 2018. Wow.
0: Thank you so, so much for that. And what a wonderful place to stop in this conversation, Chris. Thank you. I cannot wait to uh, take in the next book and take in the next film and follow your journey as it goes along. I know the best is yet to come from Chris Haley. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it for being on here. Anytime, be good, man. All right, All right you Bye. too. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Banzai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at FlamingYourHeart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.